Yo, hey, you tell them heaven is my destination. Until I reach there, I'm teaching this kingdom education. Hey, don't be scared to lay your hands on the sick. And don't be scared to cast the devil out quick. Cause your obedience will unlock a miracle, though. Don't act hysterical, radical, born again fully. This is the Gospel Unbroken Podcast. Let's awaken the lion. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Gospel Unbroken. Uh, I hope everybody uh, has had an awesome week. It's a pretty wet, rainy day here in Washington, so I figured what better time than to sit down and uh, continue on with the scripture sessions, um, the book of Romans. So we finished up chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and so we're going to go ahead and roll into um, chapter three, uh, you know, in the previous passages, Paul is, he's basically been leveling the playing field, saying that all people uh, everywhere, Jews and Greeks, are guilty before God and will face his judgment. He's shown that um, Jews, with all of their traditions, rituals, blessings, uh, they're, they're still lost before God. Jews reading this would naturally want to to know if God's choosing them was of any benefit at all they are they're god's chosen people and in this passage paul anticipates basically some arguments that jewish readers might have um some arguments they might have when you know when they read this in in reaction to his you could say quote unquote leveling the playing field uh and he goes through and answers each objection one by one so I'm going to read um, the, the start of three here in a second, but but if we just read one through eight straight through, um, it's going to seem a little bit confusing. But when we when we step back and realize that in one through eight, Paul is responding to either uh, a theoretical objection or possibly like some actual objections from from some people he's writing to, uh, we don't know. But then we can have a better grasp on one through eight. So just you know, keep that in mind um, when you're reading this. That he's likely answering some questions that have been sent to him, some uh, some objections. All right. So Romans chapter three, uh, God's righteousness upheld. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being contemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So, objection one. uh, They're basically saying, you know, based on Paul's logic on justification, there is no advantage to being a Jew. 
And I think Paul would say uh, that's wrong. In regards to um, justification, the Jews did have, and they did have an advantage. They had the oracles of God. You know, the oracles likely meaning with you know no no context that Paul gives us here. Uh, it's likely meaning the spoken words of God. So first, they have the spoken words of God, which is is a huge advantage. The the second objection that Paul addresses here, someone likely have said something along the lines of, so Paul, you're saying not all Jews are saved. If that's true, then God is unfaithful. So that that's the objection. Paul, you're saying not all Jews are saved. Therefore, you're also saying God is unfaithful because didn't God promise, you know, this is likely what the person's saying, didn't God promise that, that all Jews would be saved? And that's that's the assumption. That's wrong. God never promised he would save all Jews. And he never promised not to call sin a sin. So based on that, yes, God is faithful and true. And then he, he basically tells them, go back and read the scriptures. The quote Paul writes here is, is um, it's a verse from Psalm 51, and it's verse 4. So if we go back to... Psalm 51, I think we'll have to get a better understanding of what Paul is saying here. Psalm 51 says, and we know this is David writing the psalm. David wrote most of the psalms. Um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So here David's admitting that he, he has sinned. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So, what he's saying here is David is admitting to God, calling him a sinner. This is, this is the key. Right? He admits, he then admits, yep, I'm David. I am a sinner. But more than that, God has mercy on David. And I think Paul's using this to prove God's word true and faithful. Paul then goes on to write, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So now, Paul is reaching the conclusion uh, to, to the argument that he has been making since basically the, the beginning of Romans, that all people, both Jews, Gentiles, 
We are all rebellious sinners. Every last one of us. There is no exception. Paul is saying, you know, even though the Jews did have a distinct advantage of possessing God's chosen words, uh, basically, you know, instructing them and telling them uh, the path at which they should go, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, they were no better off uh, than the Gentiles. Because under the law, and like he said before, that that God's law is naturally put on the human heart, uh, we are all subject to sin. And, you know, when Paul says both Jews and the Greeks are all under sin, he's describing sin as a as basically a personified power that contrasts it with being under the kingship of God. Paul then goes on to quote um, Isaiah 59, and, you know, where the prophet's asserting that God has the power to save his people from exile in which he is sending them. But then he details very, very decisively on how their sin is separating them from him so that he's basically, he's not listening. And although, you know, the previous citations largely focus on sin outside of Israel, Isaiah here is highlighting Israel's rebellion. And, you know, when you widen that beyond the, the specific verse that Paul uses in Romans, Isaiah describes that some kind of sins with similar languages to what we see Paul referring to in the Psalms. So, it, you know, if his, if at this point the, the Jewish readers were not previously convinced that they were both under sin in the same way, prior to the salvation, Isaiah's message shuts, shuts that argument down. Right there. You know, and... Then he goes on in 3.20, and Paul is basically concluding the previous verse and the argument that began, like I said, in the beginning uh, by explaining what the law can and cannot do. Now, some would have argued that the works of the law only describes the Jewish rituals under the law, such as you know circumcision and what they were and were not allowed to eat. But Paul's usage of the phrase here, with, without any context... Um, basically points towards those specific laws and his alignment of the phrase when he says through the law. And what this is doing is this is demonstrating this phrase includes the entirety of the law. The law, it cannot provide a foundation upon which one can make a claim and declare ourselves right by God. Because all people have violated God's law, and we all stand under his wrath. However, what the law can do is it can be a means through which people gain the knowledge of, of sin. And Paul will later demonstrate it's necessary for, for them to recognize this, uh, and, and it will provide them the understanding of their need to be declared righteous before God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to write in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness as the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I mean, that that right there... That that right there does it for me. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So what, what he's saying is, we can only receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Right? He says, for all who believe. So if we believe... In Jesus, we can now gain God's righteousness. And he goes on and then he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, I said it last week. I've said it in the weeks before. Alex has said it. We've had other gentlemen on here say it. We are all sinners and we all fall short. Most of us fall short on the daily. Every day, we miss the mark somewhere. And Paul's telling us that right here. But he said, we are justified by his grace as a gift. So we need to receive that gift. And in order to receive that gift, we have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Paul, Paul has basically presented the facts of his case here that all people are rebels against God. And that the the one thing that we all deserve is God's wrath. Everything we get from Jesus Christ, we do not deserve. The only thing we deserve is God's wrath. Those are facts. However, with the two words that Paul says, but now he's changing the facts. Right? He says, but now... The righteousness of God. So, we were deserving of God's wrath. But because of Jesus Christ, but now, the facts have changed. God inserts himself into the story of the word that Paul's been telling. Rearranges it. And he basically rewrites the outcome. that aligns with both his justice and his creational purpose to bless his people with his perfect presence. You know, although the law has established the facts of the case and demands that all people be judged, God's power to save his people has been revealed and has established a new state of affairs. For how God's people live in fellowship with him, this new reality, it, it, it hasn't burst onto the scene out of nowhere. When, when the law of the prophets are examined, through the lens of his revelation, they testify that this but now has been the plan all along. He, that God was telling us about this long, long ago. So Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. And I think it's so beautiful that Paul goes on now and he he basically inserts a description of what Jesus Christ has accomplished 
by his death. He, he describes him as the one whom God set forward to be the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood for the public declaration of God's righteousness. And what a beautiful thing God gave us in Jesus. And, and you know, wrapping up chapter 3, uh, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is it God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Paul says, yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Did we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So to summarize, you know, he's basically including no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is exempt. We are all fallen and sinful. We we are all in need of salvation. If we pretend to be healthy and without defect, we are only proving that we that we are refusing to see the truth. Spiritual renewal can, can begin only after we have seen this truth and admit it. When we recognize that we are broken and we are helpless, God steps in and provides the power we need. The more we know about God's law, God's heart, and God's claim on our lives, the clearer it becomes that we will never measure up. God's laws in the Old Testament reflect God's will for us, and following them would lead to a healthy life. But none of us can follow these ideals, not under our own power. So as we realize this, we, we, will, we will recognize our need for God's gracious forgiveness and his power on a daily basis to help us follow his plan for a right living. God will give us his forgiveness and power that we need, but we must continually confess where we fall short and ask for his help. We can only be made right with God through the faith in Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us is so good that we don't need help. Not a single one of us is so good that we don't need God and we don't need God's help. But on that, not a single one of us is so bad that we are beyond the reach of God. Not a single one of us is so bad that God can't help us. There, There's literally nothing so bad in our lives that it can't be forgiven completely because God has shown us over and over and over again that he is a merciful and a gracious God. That's all I got for uh, chapter three today. Um, again, another quick little one. Just kind of chipping through this. I love Romans. Um, I encourage you to to get in it, 
and read it and study it and understand it. And we will continue on this path together. Uh, I love all of you. Uh, and as always, stay bold, stay courageous, stay in the word. Yo, hey, you tell them heaven is my destination. Until I reach there, I'm teaching this kingdom education. Hey, don't be scared to lay your hands on the sick. And don't be scared to cast the devil out quick. Because your obedience will unlock a miracle, though. Don't act hysterical, radical, born again fully, yes, evangelical. Hey, my commitment is consistent in my father's work. How can you say that you a Christian if you're not at work?